Okay, grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, or if you're using a device, you can turn on your device, but I will add to that, turn down the volume on your device, and then turn to Acts chapter 6. I think we've set a record for almost a year straight of hearing somebody's uh, Bible app read the text as I'm reading it also, so I just thought maybe I would start throwing that in there. You can also turn down your device, but turn to Acts chapter 6. We've been in this sermon series for almost a couple of months now, studying through the book of Acts, and I've encouraged you to read through maybe the first nine or ten chapters of the book of Acts, and I've been doing that myself, and it's been refreshing, it's been challenging and encouraging as I think about church, and a reminder of what church is all about, a reminder of what the church's mission is all about, and I hope that you've benefited from this study and reading this on your own as well. So about a year and a half ago, Jessica and I were on a trip without the kids. And parents, you know that that doesn't happen real often, so the trip eventually has to come to an end. And Jessica's sister was watching our kids, and so we landed in Dallas, and we got dropped off at the Dairy Palace in Canton, Texas, off of I-20, which is where Jessica's sister lives. But she lives in Canton. She doesn't live at the Dairy Palace, but that's... (laughs) That's where we met her, and she picked us up, and she was going to drive us back to her house so that we could get the rest of the kids' stuff, and then we would make the trip home. So as we're driving, Jessica's sister's driving, and I'm riding in the front seat. Jessica and the kids are in the back. Uh, They live out in the country, so we're going down this old county road, and uh, she's driving pretty fast, and I noticed in the road there's some vultures in the road chewing on some carcass. And as we got closer, I thought, those vultures aren't moving, and she's not slowing down. And then so she just kept driving right into those things, and then this is what the windshield looked like right after. You probably can't tell real well, but the vulture tried to fly up, and as soon as it did, boom, our windshield, our car went right into it, and it cracked the windshield, broke the windshield wipers, and sent uh, cracks all throughout the front windshield. It was kind of scary, you know, in the moment we all yelled and then she slowed down and we looked around to make sure everybody was okay and we kept driving and she's kind of like tilting her head to the left to try to see through the cracks in the windshield so we could get to her house and after all this happened I thought to myself, well that stinks for her because she's going to have to get her windshield replaced and maybe her car fixed and then a few seconds later I thought, wait a minute. She's driving our van. This isn't her problem. (laughs) This is my problem. Like this, I'm not the one driving. I didn't create the problem, but now I'm going to be the one that has to deal with the problem. And sometimes in life, that's how things work. We may not create the problems, but it doesn't mean we can just ignore problems. So the text we're reading this morning, Acts chapter six, verse one through seven, there is a major problem going on with this early church an internal problem, a problem from within. And if the problem is not dealt with, the church's mission could be compromised. It could be detrimental towards what the church is trying to accomplish in the mission of Christ, of reaching people and making disciples. If they didn't deal with this problem, things could get worse. So I want to read Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7 again. Ryan read it for us this morning during our scripture reading time. We're going to read it again and then talk about it for a few minutes. Uh, Notice verses 1 and 7 have to do with growth. You see, the church is growing, 
And Luke makes sure to tell us that, but in between, there's a major problem, and the problem is going to have to be dealt with. By the apostles, who are sort of serving as the overseers of this Jerusalem church, and again, they don't create the problem, but they're the ones that are going to have to deal with it. So we'll start in verse 1. Now, during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, which I guess that's how you pronounce it. It sounds like the character from The Lion King. Parmenius and Nicholas, a convert of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God, now here's another growth statement. The word of God continued to spread. And the number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So it's kind of amazing what Luke is telling us here about this growth that's taking place that even priests, Jewish priests who worked in the temple and served in the temple are now becoming obedient to Jesus Christ. So some important things are taking place. But let's look at this text that we just read. And what's the problem? Okay, well, the problem is what I would just call, I could summarize it as discrimination. Greek-speaking widows or the Hellenists were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. If you remember about a month ago, we looked at Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 2, it's this amazing chapter. We get this great glimpse of what the kingdom of God is all about. There's people from all over the world who speak all these different languages, and they hear the gospel presented in their own language, and then 3,000 people are baptized towards the end of Acts chapter 2, and it gives us this glimpse of a multilingual, multi-ethnic flock that Jesus was wanting all along. The gospel is for all nations. But here in Acts chapter 6, there's some discrimination going on. And for those who are Greek-speaking, the Hellenists, they're being neglected. They're being overlooked, or at least they're complaining of that in favor of the Hebrew-speaking widows. I've mentioned over the last month that Luke gives us snapshots of the early church. At the end of Acts chapter 2 and the end of Acts chapter 4, he gives us summary statements of what the church was all about. And at the end of Acts 4... Luke has this statement where he says there were no needy persons among them, which sounds glorious. Like people were so sacrificial and they were selling possessions and property and giving it to the apostles. The the apostles were distributing it out to the poor and those who needed anything. So it seems like people kind of latch on to that in Acts chapter 4. Yeah, there's no needy persons. This is what the church should be all about. But if you just wait a little bit, the problems will come. And that early church had plenty of problems, and in Acts 4, there's no needy persons, and now by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, there's plenty of needy people. And there's a problem going on, and it needs to be dealt with, and another one of the problems is distraction. Because the apostle says, this isn't right for us to spend all of our time dealing with this. Our calling for the apostles was prayer and ministry of the word. And if they're distracted dealing with 
these problems, and they're not focused on their priority and what God has called them to do. So it's not that this task is beneath them. It's just that's not what they're called to do. So there's the problem. It's a little bit of discrimination going on, which we'll see that throughout the New Testament. There's just a problem between Jews and Gentiles trying to come together in unity in Christ and then distraction on what's most important and what the apostles need to focus on. So how do they handle the problem? Well, they decide we're going to delegate. A guy named D.L. Moody once said, it's better to put 10 men to work than have one man do the work of 10 men. So if you have people that are capable of doing a task, instead of the apostles trying to handle everything, delegate. Find some people that can handle it and delegate the problem to them. It's very similar to Exodus chapter 18. I'm assuming you were all here on that Sunday before Labor Day and you remember exactly what we talked about in the sermon. Probably not, but we did look at Exodus chapter 18 on that Sunday, and I, the story is about Moses leading the people, and they've already gone through the Red Sea, and they're out in the wilderness, and Moses is the head guy in charge, and so all these people, all day long, from morning until evening, are bringing their cases, they're bringing their problems to Moses, and he has no time to do anything else, and then his father-in-law, Jethro, shows up in the camp, and he observes for one day, and he says, Moses, what you're doing is not going to work. Nobody can handle a load like this. Moses, what you need to do is find capable men who can handle these cases and share the load with you. And if it's a major problem, well, then they can still bring it to you. And so Jethro gives Moses a solution. And in Acts chapter 6, what's happening here is very similar. Find capable men and delegate the problem to them. The church is growing. In Acts chapter 1, After Jesus ascends to heaven before Pentecost, they have 120 people, and they're meeting in an upper room somewhere. By the end of Acts chapter 2, they have 3,000, and then you keep reading, and Luke keeps adding to the number of those who are being saved. They're above 5,000 at this point. So as the church expands and grows, they naturally just need some structure and some organization to it. So they have to make a decision on who the men are going to be and how they're going to choose them. Right In Acts chapter 1, they had to replace Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. He died, and so they wanted to have 12 apostles. And so they had to choose who the 12th apostle was going to be. And what I always find interesting about that is that Jesus did not tell them, here's who the 12th guy should be. They had to make a decision because decision-making is a part of character formation, which is a part of spiritual maturity. So here again, as they face this problem, They have to decide how they're going to handle it, and then they have to decide how they're going to go about choosing these men who are going to serve. And so they ask the church to nominate the guys, to appoint the men. In verse 3 and verse 5 of Acts 6, choose some men from among you, and then he gives the criteria, the men who are right for the task, men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, have good standing, and have wisdom. So find seven guys that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that have wisdom, and they have a good standing. Again, similar to the Exodus story in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, Jethro tells Moses to pick guys with a good reputation who aren't seeking dishonest gain and things like that. So there's a lot of similarities between that story. So if you notice, they're not looking for guys who are influential in the community or good-looking, attractive, or wealthy. You know, some of the things that 
from a worldly point of view that we sometimes look at. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for people who have practical common sense, who are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, and do have a good reputation because they're a solid character. Look for guys like that. So they choose seven men. We've already read those names of the seven men, and all seven men have kind of a Greek name to their, their background, to their name. But we know at least one of the seven men represent the group that's being discriminated against. I commend them for that. They didn't just choose seven guys who are from Jerusalem, who are Hebrew-speaking. They at least chose one to represent the group that felt like they were being overlooked. There's something to say about that and something to think about. The first two guys that are mentioned are Stephen and Philip, and we know their names. If you keep reading in Acts, and we'll look at this next week, in Acts 6 and 7, Stephen becomes... Well, Jesus is always the main character, but Stephen kind of becomes the character the story focuses around. And Stephen does not last as one of these special servants very long because Stephen becomes the first martyr for the Christian faith that we read about. And then in Acts chapter 8, Philip becomes one of the characters that the story centers around. And then towards the end of the book of Acts, Paul goes to visit Philip, and he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist. So we know that at least two of the seven men go on to play a very important role in the church and the mission. So it seems like, all right, there's your problem, some discrimination, women are being overlooked, the widows are being overlooked, and so let's choose these seven guys and let them handle it. The apostles laid their hands on them and commissioned them for the task. So it seems like problem solved, right, for now. Because you know, as well as I do, that as time goes on, there will be problems that will arise that you could have never predicted or thought of or dreamed of. And as the gospel message spreads, as they start planting churches all over the world in different regions and different areas of the world, these different churches in their own context will have their own problems that will come up. But now they sort of have a model to follow. Delegate. Don't let one or a few people handle everything on their own. Find people that are full of the Spirit and wisdom and good standing and send them out to help serve in some of these areas. I read this story back in the summer. It happened at a Chick-fil-A. I think it was in Georgia. And obviously it didn't happen on a Sunday because Chick-fil-A is not open on a Sunday. But it, I guess it was Georgia around there somewhere. Uh, a mom had pulled up and parked right outside where the drive through area was. And she got out of her car, and she was frantic, and she was yelling, and she opened up the back door, and something was wrong with her son. And people were watching this and didn't really know what to do, so somebody called 911. But as you see from this picture, there's a, a worker who worked for Chick-fil-A who noticed that something was wrong, and instead of waiting for an ambulance to arrive, uh, he jumped out of the drive through window, sprinted across the parking lot, and ran over to where she was. And she was so frantic, she wasn't able to help her son, but somehow her son had gotten the seatbelt wrapped around his neck and he was choking. So this worker instantly reacts, was able to cut the seatbelt and get it, out, or get it off of his neck so that the boy could breathe again, and he was fine and he saved his life. When I read that story, it's kind of, you know, scary, like it sinks in a little bit, like, whoo, that's scary because I have kids, but it's also heartwarming to think there's good Samaritans out there 
who work for Chick-fil-A or wherever they may be, who see a problem, and he's willing to jump through a window to go help and to do something about it. So you take a, a short little story like that and take the basic elements of that story, and it's very similar to Acts chapter 6. There's a problem, and if somebody doesn't do something about the problem, it could become bad. It could become detrimental. So somebody has to do something about the problem, so they identify the problem, and then they send people out to handle the problem, to do something about it, to serve. So at face value, if we were just looking at Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, and we stopped there, well then I guess the application would be if you see a problem, you see a need, then serve. Use your gifts and your talents to do something about it. But I want to go a little deeper with this story for just a moment. And if you want to go ahead and turn somewhere, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at that in just a second. But the question becomes in Acts chapter 6, are these the original deacons? You know, our church has deacons. A lot of churches have deacons. Even if you're not a part of a church, you've probably heard that title before, deacon. And so the debate is, are these the first deacons or is this something different? Well, I believe, like a lot of people believe, that this is probably where the idea and the original model for what a deacon is comes from. The word in Greek that we translate as deacon in our Bibles and our language is this word diakonos, and it's transliterated here on the screen, and it literally means servants. And we sometimes translate it as deacons, but you could also translate it as servants or special servants, or maybe sometimes we translate it as servant leaders. That word, diakonos, for servant, that could also be translated as deacon, is used twice in Acts chapter 6. And the daily distribution of food and to wait on tables or to serve tables, it just depends on the translator's choice of how they translate it. But that Greek word is used twice. They're not called deacons in an official sense, but that's where I think the idea comes from. As you have shepherds and ministers and overseers of a church who have their priorities and focus areas, well, then you can appoint deacons who can help serve and take the load off in other areas. And by the time Paul begins writing his letters to some of the churches that he's planted and writing letters to guys like Titus and Timothy who are evangelists, who are doing work with these churches, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he's telling him, as you appoint elders and overseers, Here's what they should look like. Here's the qualifications of an overseer. Or a couple of years ago, I did a sermon series on this, and I called it a character sketch. And if you were to keep reading in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8, he gives a character sketch for what a deacon should look like. So each year at our church, we have some deacons that rotate off, and then maybe we appoint new deacons. And this is, this is one of the only texts that we have to turn to to look at who should serve as a deacon. And so Paul gives us this character sketch, starting in verse 8. Deacons likewise should be serious. Well, I'm reading from a New Revised Standard Version, so probably a better English translation would be what maybe your translation says is uh, well-respected. They're serious, not in that they don't have a sense of humor, but they're just, they're not a joke. They're respected by people. They're not double-tongued. Well, there's a good chance in the early church especially, these guys who served in these deacon or special servant roles would have been working from house to house and working with different families. And so there's a chance they might have heard some gossip. 
So if you work with one family in one house and then you move to the next house, you as a deacon should have a tight rein on your tongue, not double tongue, because you don't want to spread that gospel. I mean, that gossip, you want to spread the gospel. You don't want to spread gossip from house to house. So not double tongue, not indulging in much wine, not greedy for money. They're probably dealing with some of the contribution that was given, and they're distributing it out to the poor and those in need. So they don't need to be greedy. They're not looking for a profit of their own. Verse 9, they must hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them first be tested. Then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. Uh, again, Paul doesn't give us a great explanation as to what that means by they must be tested but he's talking to Timothy, who served as an evangelist role. And so if Timothy's doing the testing, that makes me think maybe we need to have some sort of period where the deacons have to go through some sort of testing that I give them. Maybe we'll try that this year. I'll, I'll try to think of some things. So they let them be tested. Let them prove themselves. In verse 11, women, or it could be translated as their wives, likewise must be serious or respectable, not slanderous but temperate, faithful in all things, let deacons be married only once and let them manage their children and their households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And that's it. I mean, the word deacon is translated just a few other times, but this is really the fullest description we get of who a deacon should be. And we assume that by the time Paul is writing this, there's elders, overseers, and then there's also deacons who kind of work alongside them. And here's the type of person that you're looking for, and you can combine that with Acts chapter 6, with the wisdom and the filled with the Holy Spirit and good standing, and you get an idea of who should be a deacon. We're all called to be servants, but some maybe are called in a more specific, official way of serving as a deacon. Uh, I'm going to assume that maybe a lot of you know that we have deacons at this church, but there's probably some of you that don't know that, and that's okay. If you're new to this or you're unfamiliar with this language, we do have deacons who serve at our church. If you're a deacon, will you raise your hand just to give us an idea of the men who are deacons? Okay, you get an idea. We have some deacons that are sitting in this audience, and uh, they don't always come at once at the same Sunday, but you, you can meet them. You know their different areas they serve in. Uh, the church that I grew up in, my dad served as a deacon. So anybody that knew me uh, from my childhood years, if they ask me how my dad's doing nowadays, they don't call him Hal, which was his name, and he was a barber, so some people call him Hal the Barber. But the guys that knew me from church from my childhood call him the Benevolence Man. How's the Benevolence Man doing? You know why they call him that? Because as a deacon, for years, he was Hal the Benevolence Man. That was his territory. That was his service area that he worked in. And so at our church here, we have different areas, different needs, because each church has its own needs. Some are similar and some are different, depending on what context you're in. And we have deacons that serve in these different areas. And I think it kind of originated from Acts chapter 6 where there was a need. The apostles needed to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. So they appoint these men and lay hands on them to take care of the widows who were being overlooked and to oversee that role. And we get this language in, um, in I guess, the Christian atmosphere, Christian circles today, where we say things like servant leader. 
And that's a pretty good translation of what a deacon is as a servant leader or a special servant. But a lot of people in this room right now, you probably serve in a leadership role of some capacity. And usually, servant leader almost sounds like a paradox, like the two don't go together. A leader is someone higher up. A servant is someone down below who does the work of a servant. But because of Jesus, we say servant leader. And we get this language from passages like Matthew chapter 20, verse 24 through 28. When Jesus has given a lesson to his disciples on leadership, and he says, you're not going to lead like the Gentiles do. They take their authority and their power and they lord it over. And that's kind of the way it may look in the world as you have people who are higher up and they can power over you. But Jesus says, no, in the kingdom of God, the way it works is you take your talents, your abilities, whatever it may be, and you serve. Just like Jesus in John chapter 13 He washed his disciples' feet. Jesus says that's what you do with power and authority as you serve. So it's this paradoxical way of looking at leadership as servant leadership. And within our church, we have servant leaders. We have deacons who serve in that role. We have elders who serve in their roles. We have ministers who serve in their roles. And each role is still a servant leadership role. But to look at it from maybe a final angle, a final way of looking at this, is if you take that word for deacon, it just means servant, and we will have special appointed deacons in our church. However, if we're following Jesus, if we're disciples of Jesus, then we're all called to be servants. Everybody is called to serve, because that's what Jesus says. If you follow him, you have to pick up your cross Deny yourself and follow him. The first will be last. The last will be first. We're all called to be servants. Many years ago, I was a part of a church, and we had a lot of people at our church that didn't have transportation. So they would have different people giving them rides to church, and and basically what we saw was there was a problem, there was a need uh, to have somebody get the church van and just go around and pick people up. So there's a guy named Randy He was a dad, he was a granddad, a husband, he had a full-time job, but he's a follower of Jesus and he wanted to serve in some way and he saw this need and he said, you know what, I could do that. And so every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night for years, he would get to church 30 minutes early, he would get the keys to the van and he would go around and pick people up. It was never more than probably 12 people, sometimes as small as four people, but he would dedicate his time to picking people up and dropping them off. He saw a need, and he said, I can serve. I can do something about it. And I was always impressed with him, and one of our elders used to always point out, look at what Randy's doing. He doesn't have an official title or an official role. He's just a follower of Jesus. He's a member of this church. He saw a need, and he said, I can serve in that area. We're all called to be servants. So how are you serving? How are you using The gifts, the spiritual gifts that God has given you, how are you using your passion, maybe what God has laid on your heart, the talents and skills that you have, how are you using that to serve? A lot of you, you're already serving. And I commend you for that, and I encourage you to keep serving. 
You know, maybe you've already found your area that you really are plugged into and some of you involved in children's ministry or youth ministry or maybe you're involved in caring and sharing or Highway 80 or whatever it may be and and keep serving and keep praying and being open to different ways that you can serve. Maybe some of you are still kind of new to this and you're thinking, yeah, I know I need to serve, I just don't know where I should serve. So I would challenge you to begin praying about that. To inquire of God, where, God, do you want to use me to help serve this church and help serve this community and people in need? You know, be thinking about that. Be praying about that. and Look for opportunities to serve. And maybe some of you, maybe you used to serve. Maybe a long time ago you had an official role or an official title. Or maybe you just used to be more involved. So maybe today and days like today is a good opportunity for you to re-engage. Maybe you've become unplugged and it's time to plug back in. And maybe you also need to be praying about where you can serve. Regardless, we're all called to serve. In Acts chapter 6, these seven men were appointed as official servants to help with this problem that was going on and to offer an area of service. So we will have times like that, but we also have times where we're just called to find ways to serve. And Jesus goes on to say, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the greatest example of servant leadership that we can ever find is by looking at Jesus and the sacrificial way in which he served, in which he served all of us by giving his life up as a ransom. So if you have not found Christ, if you've never been baptized into Christ, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, just know that he gave up his life as a ransom for you as well. If you've been following Jesus and and you are looking for a way to serve and you want to take this serious, be praying about that. This morning we're going to have some of our overseers, our shepherds, around the room, in the back, up front with me. If you need to respond during this invitation song for any reason, I encourage you to do that. This is a safe place. You will not be judged. You can find somebody this morning and be prayed over or whatever you need. Let's stand and continue to sing.